and we want to say welcome, uh, and we are continuing uh, in a series called Who Is This Man This Morning, and some of you might be like, we're continuing in it. If you think back, uh, before Christmas, we were in this series, uh, going through the book, the gospel book of Mark. Some of you are like, that's a long time uh, between now and then. Some of us have started New Year's resolutions and stopped New Year's resolutions in between now and then, but we are back jumping in to this series, and I want to give you a little bit of context as to what is going on in the book of Mark so that we can really understand as we jump into the passage today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, but uh, before we get there, let's kind of talk about the book of Mark and let's uh, dive into that a little bit so we understand what is happening. And so within the gospel book of Mark, it was written by a man named John Mark. John Mark was a co-worker of the Apostle Paul and Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus. Now, what's really interesting about the book of Mark is that most biblical scholars agree that Mark is writing from the perspective of Peter. Peter was one of the 12 disciples. He was in Jesus's inner circle, right? He spent uh, just an enormous amount of time with Jesus in a way that uh, not uh, anybody else hardly got to spend time with him. And so Mark is writing from his perspective. And the book of Mark is known as the gospel of immediacy, the gospel of immediacy. And what you see, I would actually challenge you, if you sit down and you read through Mark and maybe you're knocking out several chapters at a time, look at how often you see the word immediately. Mark is saying, hey, Jesus did this, then he went and did this. And you see that is this gospel of immediacy. And what's interesting is that where we're picking up in Mark chapter two today, at this point in time, Jesus's public ministry is starting to explode. So much so that Jesus can't even and openly enter into a town anymore. There's like, that's the, the status that he's at. And when I think about that, that's kind of mind-blowing. This wasn't the age of social media or constant uh, news cycle going. Jesus' fame was spreading because he was healing people, he was helping people. And so as he was traveling throughout the region of Galilee, he could no longer openly enter into a town. And because his fame was growing, people were asking the question, who is this man? And then, and, and as we, we pick up in the story today in Mark chapter 2, really what it is, is it's uh, three parables that Jesus gives in response to a question. And these three parables are the, the parable of the bridegroom, the parable of the cloth, and the parable of the wineskins. So the parable of the bridegroom, the parable of the cloth, and the parable of the wineskins. And this is Mark 2, what we'll be trekking through today. And really the main point is this, and what we see in this passage as we're about to read through it, is that something new was happening. As people were asking, who is this man, something new was happening. We're going to read it and then we'll, we'll talk about it. In uh, verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then the old, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, 
and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Can we be honest for a minute, okay? Uh, whenever I was in early college and high school, I came across this passage. We actually see this passage in the book of Mark, Matthew, and Luke. The synoptic gospels, uh, meaning that if you ever see the word synoptic gospels, it's basically just meaning the gospels that are giving a synopsis of Jesus's life. So we see this, this setting take place three different times in the gospel books. And honestly, is it, and when I was younger, I would read this and I'd be like, what in the world is that talking about? And I'd be like, I'm going to the next page, all right? Let's get to something that I understand. But what I love about this passage, all right, is that it adds so much like richness to the entire like meta narrative of scripture, to, the, to scripture in its entirety. This passage is so key that we understand. And I would challenge you if you're in the room today and maybe you're a skeptic, you're like, what do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe about God? I think that what's so beautiful about this passage is we break it down and begin to understand it, is it shows just how much God weaves his story throughout scripture. We see the pointing of Jesus in the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament and it's a beautiful thing. Okay, but in order to understand something new was happening, in order to understand this, we've gotta, we gotta ask ourselves three questions. Who were the disciples of John? Who were the Pharisees? And why in the world are people coming to Jesus and asking him about fasting? Who were the, who were the disciples of John? Who were the Pharisees? And why are people asking this question about fasting? And so the disciples of John were men who were following John the Baptist. And what we know about John the Baptist is that he was the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for Jesus's ministry, right? He was preaching a gospel, or a, not a gospel, a message of repentance to people, challenging them to turn from their sins. And so because of that, because John was leading the way for Jesus's public ministry, he had people who were beginning to follow him. And so one of the questions they were asking, I believe John's disciples were asking out of sincerity, is why, Jesus, are your disciples not fasting? Why are they not giving up food like we are? I think they had some genuine curiosity in that. The other group of people that we have to understand is who were the Pharisees? Now the Pharisees, I believe, were asking this question. Oftentimes, they, when they came to Jesus, they were asking him in a sense to try and trap Jesus. They did not like that their religious authority was being threatened and so the Pharisees were often asking really out of a tone to trap Jesus. And when we look at the Pharisees, who were they? What did they believe? Well, the Pharisees were people who put value in God's word, right? So at that time, they put value in the Old Testament teachings. But what they also put equal value, here's where they got themselves in trouble. They also put equal value on their own oral tradition. So the Pharisees were people who believed in God's word. They followed the law that was given in the Old Testament, but they also put equal value into oral tradition. And so what had happened, right, this gives us context into why these people were asking the question about fasting. And in the cultural context that Jesus was in, what the Pharisees were doing is they would actually be fasting twice a week, on Mondays and on Thursdays. And what's interesting about that is how this developed is that they had, this had developed, this practice of fasting twice a week had developed out of their own oral tradition. 
If we go back to the Old Testament and we look at the first instance of fasting, it's in Leviticus chapter 16, okay? And what, and what God has communicated to the people, if you know what Leviticus 16 is, I actually didn't realize this till this week. I was at midweek Bible study with Andrew Albritton, how to enjoy reading your Bible. This is why you should go to midweek. That Leviticus chapter 16 is actually smack dab in the middle of the law that, G, that God gave his people, the Israelite people in the Old Testament. Leviticus 16 is right in the middle. And in Leviticus 16, this is known as the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was where God's chosen people, the Israelite people, set aside time in an effort of cleansing sin, right? And they set aside time, they would fast, and this was a special day of the year for the Jewish people. And they would set aside this time and this act of fasting was one of sorrow and it was one of sincerity, that they would give up food in an effort to seek God and to seek forgiveness for their sins. And this was the only time that God commanded the people to fast up until this point. And so that's what we see in the Old Testament. Well, the Pharisees had taken that and they had taken what was an act of sorrow and sincerity and had turned it into a show during the time of Jesus. They had taken an act of sorrow and sincerity and turned it into a show. They were doing this, they were fasting twice a week to show people how religious they were, how moral they were, and they had missed the heart of God. And so they're asking this question, people are asking Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? Why do your disciples not fast? And this is when Jesus gives three parables, as he so often did, to answer the question. He gives three parables. In the first we see in uh, verse 19, Jesus answers them and said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with, with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So what is Jesus saying right here? Jesus is alluding to the fact that he is reason to celebrate, okay? Uh, I don't know when, when you got married. Uh, when I got married, uh, my, my, my brother, who was my best man, and our wedding party, we all went to Ririco. You guys know Ririco, the, the restaurant here in Springfield? I think it's still open, okay? It's an all-you-can-eat Brazilian grill. And what they have is they have these knobs on your, on your table, and one side is green and one side is red. And you flip it to green when you want food. And they just come around and they'll just cut, cut meat right off of a stick right there for you. It's actually pretty incredible. Uh, you just play a, fat, a flat rate and uh, that, that's where you eat. And so we did that as an act of celebration. Like we weren't fasting as we were leading up to the wedding because that is a time of celebration. And, and you look at this and we see it and it's like, okay, Jesus, why was he reason to celebrate? Jesus knew that he was the Messiah. Jesus knew, hey, I'm the son of God. I am bringing salvation into the world. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The Pharisees and, and the disciples, they are fasting and they are missing the mark, but Jesus is saying, hey, this is why I'm here. This is a reason to celebrate. Jesus came and he was gonna take away suffering. He was gonna take away injustice. He was gonna take away evil. He was gonna overcome death in the grave by dying on the cross for our sins. And so Jesus knew, you know, and, and in verse 20, we can kind of see that Jesus is alluding to already his death on a cross. He's saying, hey, there's gonna be a time where I'm no longer here on earth and you can fast when that happens. That's why when, uh, as the church now, we just came out of 21 days of prayer and fasting. 
And the reason we do that is because in scripture we see that fasting in the New Testament is associated with prayer, uh, that the early church would fast when they were making decisions, and we fast and we continue in that spiritual discipline because Jesus is no longer with us. But we also equally at the same time While we engage in that act and we understand that Christ is no longer with us, that he's seated at the right hand in heaven, that we no longer fast. I mean, we we see that Jesus is at the right hand in heaven, the right hand of God in heaven. What we see happening is that Jesus was saying, I am something and a reason to celebrate right now. And we still continue in that joy and in that celebration as the church today. You know, I think about, uh, you know, this, the trials I was reading this week, the trials that faced the early church and under the Emperor Nero, that Christian persecution, uh, oftentimes what they would do with Christ's followers is they would take them and put them in the skins of dead animals and they would sick savage and wild dogs on these Christians to kill them. There was extreme persecution that faced the early church. And you think like that's in verse 20 here. This is what Jesus is alluding to, that a day of you know, mourning will be here. But right now Jesus is saying, hey, I am a reason to celebrate. The parable of the bridegroom, Jesus being the bridegroom and the disciples being his companions. He's saying, hey, right now there's a celebration that is happening. And you know, as we continue on uh, and we see that Jesus is a reason to celebrate in verse 21 and 22, which honestly for me was part of the confusing uh, piece of this passage when I was, I was younger, is like we see the parable of the cloth and we see the parable of the wineskins. And so in the parable of the cloth, what Jesus is saying as we read it here in verse 21, he says, no one sews a piece of unsunk cloth from an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So what happens is, is if you take a new piece of cloth and you were to sew it in to a garment, right, what would happen over time is the new cloth is strong, right? And so it would eventually tear, not itself, but will tear away from the old cloth. And so when we look at the practicality, it's like, okay, I get it. How do we apply this to our lives in 2023? What Jesus is saying here is that, hey, I didn't come just to like patch up humanity, I came to do something completely new. I didn't come to just be another portion of that old covenant between God and his people. I came to do something entirely new. And in the same way today, Jesus just doesn't come into our lives. When we look at this personally as well, Jesus doesn't just come to us to just patch us up, right? He just patches us up and slaps a Band-Aid on us and calls us good. No, he comes to us to make us a completely new creation. You know, when you read in Ephesians 2, verse four and five, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, anyone in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That within Christ, what Jesus was alluding to is that, hey, something new is happening here. I didn't come to just, uh, you know, be another patch in that Old Testament. I came to do something completely new. And under this new covenant, when we have faith in Jesus, we are made completely new, transformed and changed by Christ. We have newness in our lives. And Jesus was saying, hey, you can't add something, you can't add this new thing I'm doing to something that is old. 
You can't add this new thing that I'm doing to something that is old. You know, when we look at the parable of uh, the wineskins, this kind of continues this train of thought for us. And the parable of the wineskins, you know, if you took a, a wineskin the, in, in that time, in that cultural setting, this wineskin, if it was an old wineskin, the leather would have become dry and, and cracked. And what happened when they put the wine into the wineskins is that it fermented and it expanded and it increased pressure. And so it had to be placed into a new wineskin. Well, what had happened if you put it in an old wineskin is under that fermentation, under that pressure, the wineskin would actually burst. And here was what, was, what the Pharisees and, and people like that, and I think if we're not careful, it's us today as well, is they were trying to put faith in their own morality, faith in their own moral living, and faith in Jesus, Right? Well, the Pharisees were really trying to put it mainly in their moral living, right? That the fact that they could be righteous on their own and follow all of God's law. But we know that that's not the case. The law in the Old Testament was there to reveal sin and to show us that we cannot live a perfect life on our own. And so what we see here is that you can't mix this idea of like just living a moral life and have Jesus too. You can't mix what is new with what is old, because salvation comes always through faith alone. That's where we receive salvation from. But that faith, what, you know, and you might be like, okay, well then uh, it's just faith and I'm done, right? But what happens is when we are transformed and changed by Christ, that faith alone doesn't stay alone. Once we've accepted Christ and then we're walking with him, being guided by the Holy Spirit, that there is spiritual fruit that is produced in our lives. But it's not this idea that we have to be uh, put some faith in our own righteousness and some faith in Jesus. You can't mix the two. Jesus was doing something that was completely new. He was doing something that was completely new. You know, I've been, I've been reading this book um, called The Prodigal God by uh, Timothy Keller. And I think, uh, you know, he closes this book, and I'd encourage you, it's, it's a great book and a great read, and um, there's some application to what we're talking about here today, but uh, I love that he closes the book uh, at the end with a passage from Isaiah, right, that was written 700 years before Jesus' public ministry. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 25, verse six through eight. He says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the, the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He, sw he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. I love that line, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. That that was the new thing that Jesus was here to do. And what happened is, is that the Pharisees and people like that, they missed out on what God was doing. And we have to be careful in our own lives to not miss out on what God is doing. Because that's one of the saddest narratives that you see as scripture continues is that so many people, they missed out on what Jesus was doing. These Pharisees thought through right living and living a moral life that they would somehow make their way back to God, but they missed out on the new thing that Jesus was doing. 
You know, as I was praying this week and, you know, as you look at this passage and I'm like, man, okay, you know, how, how, what is the application of this? Like, what, what is a story? You know, I was praying, God, like, give me a story. Give me, give me something that helps to highlight this passage. And as I was praying, I, I, uh, I, I wanted to ask uh, Taylor Bullis, who was actually up here singing uh, just before uh, I came up. She's one of our residents here at High Street. So Taylor is a resident here at High Street. And I asked Taylor, I said, Taylor, what is your testimony? What is your, your story? And she said, hey, when I was a fresh, or whenever I was a freshman, I came down to Missouri State University. I had never been in church. I had never heard the gospel presented. She said, none of that was part of my life. She's like, but I came to college and I was living a moral life, you know? And she started to, to meet with a girl named Mackenzie. And Mackenzie went to church here at High Street as well and uh, has, has done just so much in ministry since this point. But Mackenzie, at a young age, starts pouring in to Taylor and starts processing the gospel with her and telling her about that. Now, Mackenzie's story was different than Taylor's. Taylor was like kind of making moral decisions right. She wasn't engaging uh, in that college lifestyle. And McKinsey was sharing with her and saying, McKinsey was saying, hey, these are some of the things that filled my life before I came to Christ, some of these external things that uh, I was engaging in. And Taylor was like, well, I'm not doing those things. I, and she didn't really see her need for the gospel, if you will. She didn't really see her need for the gospel. But she said, as McKinsey kept processing this with me, uh, she said, one day uh, I went uh, and I was in a different setting and I was evaluating some relationships around me and Taylor said that as she began to do that, that it just kind of dawned on her, hey, I'm not broken externally, but I am broken internally. She said, when I look at like the conversations that McKinsey and I were having, she said, there's so much life and there's so much light in that. And then I go to other places and I don't see it in the same way. And it was in that moment, she said, I realized my own internal brokenness that externally, sure, I was making these right decisions and maybe things looked like they were good, but internally, internally, I was completely broken. She recognized her need for a savior. She recognized that on her own, she couldn't be righteous enough, good enough. She needed Jesus to save her. And that's the question we ask ourselves. If we're trying to just uh, you know, be saved through moral living, is how good is good enough? What it always is, is our faith in Jesus is what saves us. But then after we have faith in Christ, it's the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives to produce righteousness in us, that as we abide in Christ, he produces the fruit. He produces the fruit. And so what's sad in that narrative of the Pharisees and in this story is that they often missed out on what God was doing because they didn't understand that Jesus was doing something new, that Jesus was doing something new. You know, and um, as we, we kind of look at, you know, okay, practical application of this. Jesus was something to celebrate. Obviously, he was up to something new. What does that mean for the church today? In 2023, what does that mean for us? Well, one of the things that we can celebrate uh, Jesus through is through taking communion. And what is communion? Communion is an ordinance that, uh, that God and Christ gave the church and really what it is is sharing in, in, in a meal of sorts. And so communion is this ordinance, meaning a God-ordained ceremony that has been given to the church. We see in scripture, the early church did this and it was instituted when Jesus had a, uh, this, this meal with his disciples before his death. 
And so within communion, we have a cup and we have bread. And the bread symbolizes the broken body of Christ. The bread symbolizes the broken body of Christ. That through the broken body of Christ, we were restored to God. And the blood representing this, uh, and the cup representing the spilled blood of Christ on the cross as a payment for our sins. And we see this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus instituted this with his disciples. And elsewhere we see that this, this, was, this ordinance was continuing and this practice was continuing in the early church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see that uh, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church that they were just taking communion as this kind of flippant act and they weren't approaching it with a sincere heart and it just kind of become a mess. And so Paul gives some guideline and some instruction for the church there. He says, hey, you need to examine yourselves. And in examining yourselves, before you undergo this practice of communion, in examining yourselves, what you need to see is a recognition of your own sin and a recognition of your need for a savior. That as we examine ourselves, that's what should happen I've got two quotes that I love that, that kind of add importance, that as we just talked about, Jesus was a reason to celebrate. As we close here, these, these, uh, these two quotes, I think, give context into how important practicing communion is to our spiritual walk. And Matthew Henry says this, he says, communion is not merely just something that's done in the remembrance of Christ, what he has done and suffered, but it's to celebrate his grace and our redemption. We declare his death to be our life, the spring of all our comforts and our hopes. One of my favorite pastors, Tony Evans, he says, we remember his death for us in the past and utilize its power and provision in the present until he returns for us in the future. We're remembering what he has done in the past, utilize its power and provision in the present and eagerly await his return for us in the future. And so as we talk about and Jesus lays out to the disciples, hey, I am a reason to celebrate the act of communion today, what a perfect way to put into practice what Jesus was talking about. That we have an opportunity to remember and to celebrate that Christ died on a cross. He came and lived a perfect life, but he died on the cross for our sins as a payment. And also communion is a time where why do we come to church, right? Why do we do this? Why do we engage in this? Well, we have an opportunity to collectively, as a group, take a moment to examine our own lives. You know, I think about it like, I've, I've messed up so much stuff even this week leading up to this and it's like, I've had to take a time to just examine and say, God, man, will you forgive me of that sin? And I've had to examine my life and where I've fallen short and ask for forgiveness. And in that examination, I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you ever recognized your own need for a savior today, your own brokenness? You know, if you're in here and you've been trying to do it on your own and um, to kind of on your own cord come close to God, Jesus is the bridge that we need. And it starts by making him Lord of your life. And in making Jesus Lord of your life, what you're saying is in humility, God, I recognize my own sin and my own brokenness. And I realize that I can't save myself. We can reflect and we can celebrate. That's what communion causes us to do. Causes us to examine our own lives. And then it should cause us to what? Proclaim the gospel. That as we, you know, I think God uh, uh, gave us this thing, this kinesthetic act that we engage in together to break up the norm of what we are doing, right? It's different, right? This, this, uh, this kind of communion aspect, it's, it's something that we do together and um, we have to eat and drink together. 
And I think God gave us that for a reason, to stop us in a moment to collectively as a church, remember and celebrate and proclaim what Christ did on the cross. And as I've thought about that, I've thought, man, that's, that's special to realize that, you know, this, this thing that Jesus did with his disciples before his death, we too as the church still today get to engage in and we get to share and we get to proclaim what Christ has done for us.